Welcome to the Frontier Podcast from Gun.io. I'm your host, Ledge. I have a couple guests here with me. Um, Debbie Madden, CEO and co-founder of Stride Consulting in New York. And Jason Abel, COO of Ethode in Cleveland. Debbie, why don't you give us a quick introduction of yourself? All right. Thanks. Hi, everyone. I'm Debbie Madden, co-founder and CEO of Stride Consulting. Stride is an agile software development consultancy. So what that means is we send seasoned teams of software developers to embed with existing tech teams to help them be the highest functioning version of themselves, whether we code alongside them or help mentor them in agile engineering practices or help bridge the gap between product engineering and stakeholders. And uh, I've been doing this for about 15 years and happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. Jason, how about yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Jason Abels. I'm a team coach, COO over at Ethode. Uh, we are primarily a web, web development shop focusing on open source technology. So uh, I've been involved in the web since the mid-90s, so back when AOL and dial-up was a big thing and BBSs and all that good stuff. So had my first GeoCities page with the under construction animated GIF. So I've uh, <laughs> been doing this for a while. Uh, I've seen my fair share of rewrites and legacy code. Uh, so looking forward to the talk. Great, great. First, I'd like to ask each of you to talk a little bit more maybe about the root issues that come up and, and how and where do messy legacy code situations you know, arise in the first place? Uh, Debbie, why don't you kick that off? Sure. So one of the interesting things that I've seen recently in the last two years is the definition of what makes code legacy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So back in the day, in order for code to be considered legacy, it had to be decades old. And I start going to meetings and code that's three or four years old is being considered legacy. So um, so that's interesting to me that the definition of legacy code, at least in terms of how long ago it was written, has changed um, by a factor of you know five or six years recently. Um, so, you know, because a few years ago I would have said, how do we get here? Well, you know, code was written before things like test-driven development were created and it just, you know, their modern practices have evolved and it's not necessarily the code is broken and sometimes it is, but it's just not um, using the modern best practices that we are accustomed to today in many environments, but that's not always the case. It's sometimes now the case that um, what I would consider relatively new code is considered legacy too. And how did we get here can be, I mean, it's really, it could take an hour just to answer this question, but some of the, the common things are um, uh, just a factor of time, right? Code that was written a long time ago, in a, in a, like let's say a version of Java that has been modernized five or six times, Java two, four, five, eight, things like that. Um, or a team uh, never thinks that they're gonna succeed. And so they just cut corners and throw spaghetti code against the wall just to see if anyone wants what they're selling which is often the right thing to do at the time. And they kind of get uh, crushed by their success and never go back and fix the, um, the, the brittle code. So those are some of the things I know, Jason, I see you nodding. Um, feel yes. free to add more, but some of the things that I've seen are, are the ones I've just mentioned. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of legacy code, you know, comes out of good intentions. Like I don't think any developer sits down and goes, you know what, I'm gonna write a bunch of crappy code today. <laughs> 
uh, a lot of it comes from external forces. And the reality of the situation is you never have all the time and all the money in the world to sit there and write the best code in the world. So I think a lot of that comes from external pressure from the business. And maybe you're hiring junior developers or maybe you're out um, sending it offshore or something like that to uh, get the job done as fast as possible. So I think a lot of this comes from when there's a lot of focus on speed over quality and going with like the lowest bidder in a situation. So uh, someone naive coming to a situation says, we need to get um, all these features done. We have X amount of dollars to spend. This developer is charging me way less per hour. Um, you know, let's go with them. I don't see why not, right? So I think a lot of it comes from poor executive decision. Um, not really doing your due diligence on um, checking out to see if a development shop is good or not. Um, but even when developers are, um, you know, coming in with the best intentions, they they may be under the pressure, even if they're good developers, maybe under pressure to say like, okay, what are ways we can make this even faster? Can you guys just not write tests? Let's mm -hmm. just not write tests. It's only going to be a prototype. We just need to get it done for this this demo next month. And as long as we have it done for the demo, we'll be all good. And so everyone's like, well, I don't know if we should do that. And then, you know, the demo comes by and they go, okay, great. Demo went over great. And here's the thing. They're going to give us more money if we can get this one or two extra features in there. And promise, promise, promise after that, we'll get back to the refactor. Mm -hmm. And then several of those decisions later is suddenly you're looking at this pile mess after a year. It doesn't take long to get to spaghetti, right? So you, you could take six months. It can take a year. But after a while... Now you're getting to the point where maybe you're starting to run out of budget uh, and maybe the developers are getting frustrated. So maybe there's a developer who's a senior developer who's been arguing against this the whole time. And they say, you know what, guys, I'm fed up with this code base. I am done. Mm -hmm. Junior leaves. Now it's just stuck with junior developers. And now it becomes even worse. You have no leadership and it just continues to be this ball of mud that expands uh, over and over throughout the, throughout uh, time. So uh, a lot of that comes from no coding standards. Um, mm -hmm no automated tests, you know, and then once one developer leaves, then you can start to get into a high turnover culture. Uh, I've seen this before as well, where, you know, one person leaves and everyone's like, well, I like working with that developer. The whole reason I was sticking through this crappy code was because we had the team to go with it. And so now once one developer leaves, now the others leave. And now you're in this high turnover situation. And now you have a whole new team coming into this new code base to work on this code. And they go, I don't know how to read this stuff, so uh, I can't find the login class because it's not set up in a way that I'm used to with the framework I'm used to. So I'm going to write a new login class to do to do basic logging stuff. And now you have like two or three different login classes that do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, or, or the other thing you can see, too, is when you're working in like a, a firefighting kind of environment. So everything is a high priority. You've got maybe some kind of CEO and everyone's listening to the CEO. No one's, a, or you're in a culture where people are afraid to say no to people. So it's like, whatever the new feature is, where the sales team says we need, we absolutely have to get this done uh, today. Uh, so whatever you're working on, stop in that and start working on this. Mm -hmm. A lot of in-progress work that never gets finished, I think leads to legacy code as well. Yeah. And one of the things I see often, like one of my um, developers last week, he was giving a demo to the stakeholders and I said, how are you feeling about the demo? He said, I'm really nervous because almost all of the progress is behind the scenes, under the hood, right? So he was taking that discipline, that time, <clears throat> excuse me, to um, do the d things that are necessary to, to create code that is maintainable and robust over time. Um, and he was afraid he was going to get, um, uh, you know, kind of reprimanded from the stakeholders for it because they weren't going to be able to see a shiny new feature. Um, 
it, it was going to be, it, it was critical for the success and the foundation moving forward. But in that moment that show me what I've paid for phase, that's where the corners get cut, like Jason said, and the the code that sometimes it's easier to just put that sideways and rewrite the whole thing and not um, deprecate the old stuff. And um, then you get into the situation of um, unnecessary complexity and confusion. And um, and that's definitely something that 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 occurs, unfortunately, too often. Right. And, and yet we all know that there's never once been a budgeting meeting where someone said, Hey, I have an idea, you know, let's spend some money on a refactor (laughs) because, and I think maybe as technical leaders, we bear some of the responsibility of just many times having failed, been able to demonstrate our value to business leaders. Mm -hmm. If if you can't explain to a business leader, and I've been on both sides of that fence, probably you have too, you know, why should I spend money on that? And what Mm -hmm. do you mean? And why didn't you do it right the first time? Right. And in their mind, that sounds like a reasonable question. So, I mean, I'm deviating a little bit here. So how do you answer that, that question? You know, well, again, it's like, if you did it right the first time, we wouldn't be here. Right. I I think that's, that's a great point because you, you, you can be in a situation where maybe you have, and maybe you just haven't documented it. Right. So do you have any documentation showing that those conversations have happened because it's easy to forget, (laughs) you know, uh, you may, Why did like, we make this decision? Right. It's it's good to do a rate analysis. You know, what are the risks we're making here? What are the assumptions we're making? You know, what are the trade-offs we're making when we're, we're deciding to rush something to hit some kind of demo next week? You know, when we're saying we're sacrificing quality, that's what we mean. Like, we need to schedule in time to go back and fix that. You know, so it's, you know, most people I'm sure are familiar with the term technical debt. And that's, you know, it's okay to take on technical debt if you have a if you have the ability to pay it off, you know, so one of the best, I mean, it's one of the best analogies you can try to give to someone who doesn't understand tech as well is to say, you know, it's just like, you know, if you're starting off your business and you have like, you know, a $20,000 limit on your credit card, you know, you can go out and buy all this stuff, but at some point you're going to max out that credit card. At some point that interest is going to start to grow to a point where you're going to be paying more on the interest and you're going to be stuck in debt forever. Mm -hmm. Right. So you need to make smart decisions when you take on debt. And so if you're going to take on a short-term debt to hit some kind of objective, like, you know, being in some kind of sales demo or something like that, then you have to pay it off. And I think you need, as, as a technical leader, you need to say, hey, here's where our debt to income ratio looks like, right? So as we accumulate that debt, our ability to deliver features slows down, mm-hmm. right? So, and at some point it's going to come to a screeching halt and that's when we hit technical bankruptcy. Yeah. And I think that always has to be part of the conversation. And it's like, are we going to prioritize this, this new feature? Or are we going to go back and work on something? You know, we can only, it doesn't make sense to be flying down the highway and trying to change the wheels on the car at the same time. Right. And another thing is if you're not building the proper foundation, uh, eventually that's not going to work. You know, if, if you're trying to build a skyscraper on quicksand, you know, you're just doomed for failure, right? So at some point you need to get that foundation stable and you have to invest in that as early as possible because the later you wait to do that, the more expensive it is going to, to, to fix it. Uh, right. So, you know, the longer that goes, the more money it's going to cost and the less of an RI you're going to get. So, Right. And I, th- I think from a, you know, from a stakeholder perspective, I think one of the things that I've come up against is that, you know, you have to explicitly tell 
people and have the conversation, you can fix one variable. You can fix how much this thing is going to cost and you can fix the scope or you can fix the due date, but you can't fix more than one thing. And I think that's something that is um, abused all the time. And that's one of the things that gets people into trouble because they say, oh, well, I was promised this thing on this date for this amount. And, <laughs> you know, nothing in life works that way. Um, and I think having that conversation early and often, and like Jason said, like in writing, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm not talking about in the contract because, you know, um, I'm very adamant about the facts that, you know, contracts are not agile and that's a whole nother podcast, but um, <laughs> even with the business folks, like, listen, you have to understand, like we can do what you ask, but you have to understand what you're prioritizing and the trade-offs, right? If you have are tied to the holiday season, and you absolutely must get something out by November 20th, then we might not get all of your features. And if you have a brand to protect and it has to work, then we have to have time to protect the code, clean up the tech deck, build that solid foundation, which means you might not get that shiny feature, but the checkout process will work, right? Well, but I think it's like having those conversations early and often and, um, you know, really embracing Agile at the business side of things, having uh, your stakeholders part of the planning process, understanding you can ask for what you want. You can be in control of what is number one and number two priority as long as we are able to say, um, it's listen, it's not going to happen. Or if it happens, you're, you know, it's probably going to crash. Like, sure, we can throw something together, but you know, your, your thing might not work. So, um, people have to get, um, uh, used to saying, um, uh, used to the reality that, um, they're risking some things, not everything. It's not a zero, you know, if you ask for A, then you're risking B. If you're asking for scope, you're risking quality. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're asking for scope, you're risking budget. Um, yeah, I think there are trade-offs all the time, you know, so when you're, when you're looking at someone who's completely focused on speed and that's all they're boom, boom, boom. They're like, you know, I read about stretch goals. You need to give people stretch goals. Uh, and that's all they're focused on. You know, you could say, well, um, I need to get to the airport. And my Uber driver is going to be here in five minutes, but there's a bicycle in the garage. So I can get the bicycle right now, you know, so, but that is not, you know, but it's still going to take me an hour to get to the airport by using my bicycle. So just because I have access to it right now, doesn't mean that's a good decision. I'd much rather mm -hmm. wait the five minutes until the Uber driver shows up and it only takes me 20 minutes to get to the airport. Yep. Y'all are reminding me of the, uh, I'm sure you all know Steve McConnell, right? The, the problem with quick and dirty is the dirty remains long after the quick has been forgotten. That's mm -hmm. true. And, <laughs> that is so uh, true. Yeah, that happens to us a lot in software. Um, so I read a comment on, on Stack Overflow when I was researching our topic. Uh, Jerry Coffin is a sort of highly ranked Stack Overflow writer and commenter. And, and he said, code is often retained as legacy, even when it really shouldn't be higher level managers generally assume re-implementing a system will cost as much or more than the initial implementation did, which is rarely true. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit because we all know what's it going to cost is the first item on a business leader's mind. And therefore it has to be the first you know, thing on, on the technical leader's mind, because that's who everybody answers to, you know, ultimately in, in finance and sort of the executive suite. 
know, when is the right time to, to think about re-implementation? Maybe, maybe it's not as awful as we think it's going to be. We have all seen that technical folks like ourselves maybe sometimes overestimate how awful that is. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes we don't. And how do you know the difference? So, Jason, I'll kick it to you to, to start that one. Yeah, I think uh, I think as tech people, you have to be you have to, you know, especially early in your career, uh, you're not thinking about the business side of things. Uh, you're thinking about how much you want to do this rewrite, how much you want to get out of this ugly code. And so you're going to paint a picture that's prettier than what's actually going to happen. And the thing you have to remember is all that's going to do is going to make you lose cred credibility. Um, so you need to be realistic. Um, you're always going to be, you know, what Hofstadter's all is going to say, it's always going to take you longer, right? Uh, um, and you're always going to be overly optimistic. So developers tend to think of rewrites in the terms of like weeks and months. It's probably more in our order of magnitude of years. Um, and if you're looking for uh, a person on the business side that's wanting to break that down into hours and days, you know, that's, that's not going to, that's not going to work out right. So I think the first thing is to just be upfront about the uncertainty um, and just and, and try to communicate how unpredictable the process will be and that we don't know what the final cost will be. And we have to accept that. Um, and then so a lot of times, you know, you'll get feedback that say, well, you're a professional. You should know how long it's going to take. Um, so one of the analogies I like to give is, you know, a lot of people watch football or whatever. So. I'll say, okay, well, how long have you been watching football for? You know, most people are like, oh, I haven't watched football since I was a kid. You know, so I go, well, who's going to go to the Super Bowl this year? You know, and what's the score of the game going to be? You know, well, you don't know yet because there's so many X factors are going to happen. And that's just in the game of football. Software is infinitely more complex than that. Um, so I think what you, what you need to do at that point is to start selling them on the process instead of the estimate. And, uh, and I think what you can do is try to find – I would say A is try to find an early win and B find out what the most complex thing is. So try to find something very simple. It could be like, maybe it's a contact form or something like that, or something very simple that maybe not a whole lot of people, if it's like a web app or something like that, maybe not a whole lot of people are using that. And then say, we're going to use this little slice here just to kind of test the waters. Um, so what we're going to pull out of this is we're going to get an idea of what the best possible refactoring situation is going to look like. So you refactor that a little bit and then you get a, now you've got a baseline of what the best case scenario is going to be. And then you say, okay, does this look like something we want to proceed with? Um, and from there you can say, okay, now let's try to tackle the riskiest part of the application or maybe one of the more complex parts of the application. Something where you can get an anchor on the other side of how long something really complex is going to take. Okay. So yeah, so we're going to spend a little money here and we're all going to acknowledge that this is uncertain, but you can pull the plug at any point. If we get past, you know, you can set like a, a baseline. You can say, maybe we only work on this complex section for no more than two months. And that's the, that's when we pull the plug. And uh, so you've set a time barrier um, and then you can come in and, and once you, once you've refactored that section, you now have a, a section that didn't take too long and a section that, that took a while. And you can say, we can say with some fair of certainty that uh, it's going to fall somewhere between either that best case scenario or that worst case scenario. And then you can go through and say, you know, how much of the app we have to do. Uh, and then from there, you can say it can be incremental funding things. So we don't need to come up with this base cost right now. We can say if this is all we have in the budget to do this amount of refactoring, um, then we can start with just these main features and then try to go for those little wins and then just try to get budget approvals after each win. So look at it in an incremental funding thing as opposed to one big, huge project. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with everything you've just said. And also my reaction to reading that Stack Overflow comment was, I think that Jerry has the wrong formula. Um, he is asking, what is the cost of the rewrite compared to the cost of the initial implementation? Mm. But that the cost of the implementation implement the cost of the initial implementation is sunk cost that money has already been spent and it doesn't matter how much money it costs versus how much money it's going to cost the only thing that matters is for the next 12 months this is my budget what are the most important things to be spending that budget on and if your business has um three projects 10 projects one project um, what are the most important business value added things that you could be doing to generate the most uh, profit for your business? And if that means rewriting all or some of your legacy application, then, then that's where that money should go. If it means um, building a new application, um, spending it on marketing, spending it on places outside of the code, then that's where it should go. So I really, I really um, believe that, that 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 whole way of going about thinking about the rewrite is you're comparing it to the wrong thing. Um, and it's much more important and much more valuable to the business to think about um, for every dollar that you have to spend, where is the best place for you to spend it? Um, and the, uh, the second part of that is it is, it is, it is a, a myth that you have to rewrite your entire code base or not. That is simply not true. And I know Jason, you started to talk about that. And you know, it is very possible that there is a 20 year old, a 10 year old, a five year old part of the code base that is just fine. Yeah. It's probably written in an old tech stack. It's probably not fully tested, but if it works and it's not on the critical path and it's not your competitive advantage, and it's not in your top 10 priority list, there's no reason to get rid of it just for the sake of making it, you know, uh, in React when React didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you don't have to, it's very possible to, to, to find the seams, go into that, that legacy code base and find, like Jason, we're talking about the easy places to start, the business value places to start and and have the kind of the best of both worlds, right? It's called like the strangler approach, right? Don't, don't do like you say, you know, one, one giant approach, really look at it as smaller um, chunks, if you will, inside the code base and, and really ask yourself which pieces are, are, are required, right? If there's something that you're getting customer calls all the time, if it's losing you money, if people are angry about it, you, you, another option can be just to, 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 to deprecate, to shut it off, right? You don't have to actually rewrite it. You could just say, you know what? We're getting negative feedback on it. It's clunky, it's broken. And by the way, it doesn't actually generate value for the business. So let's just simply stop using this entire product or code base or part of the code, right? That's another option as well. On top of all that, when do you scrap it and start over and how do we handle that? I mean, you know, the consultant in me has to say it depends. I can't, you know, there's no, there is no, um, there is no uh, black and white answer. Um, but I, I view this like a visual path through the system, right? Question number one, is this code in the critical success path of your business? Mm -hmm. 
If yes, is it broken, right? If no, well, is it broken, right? And you really need to, to answer the question, how, how much is having that code costing you? And you really need to sit down and, and run the numbers, right? If, yeah. if it's gonna cost you $100,000, $200,000 to rewrite the whole thing or the majority of it, um, and you believe in uh, within 12 months after completion, you will um, double your profit margins or gain a million dollars or land that key customer or break into the new vertical, then it's worth it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, this is um, in essence, part of the conversation teams and business owners need to be having around um, annual planning. Right, like when you sit down as a business, you know, that's why I bring uh, my entire leadership team uh, uses Agile. We have weekly scrums, we have prioritized backlogs, we have annual initiatives, and um, every single week and every single month and quarter and year, we ask ourselves, like, what's the most important thing? And here's the key you have to define what good looks like and then measure progress towards that. So, if good looks like you are um, retaining X percent of your customers, and you fall below that, well, do the five, five whys. Why are we losing our customers? Because they can't log in. Why can't they log in? Our code stinks. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if, if you land at um, this piece of code is critical to our business and the reasoning for our bottleneck is the quality of the code, then you need to rewrite your code and you need to seriously consider investing in it for the long run. Before you rewrite it, you need to understand what good looks like when you're done or else you'll never know, right? Because that's the thing. Once you start to rewrite it, you could be doing this for infinity. You can always add another test. You can always refactor. You can always add a new feature, you know, before you get into this, this mammoth undertaking, you really, um, it makes good business sense to, to think about at the end of the day, what do I want to achieve with this? And so that, you know, when you get there, Uh, Again, if I wanted to become a marathon runner, which I do not, but if I did, um, I would want to know, okay, well, how long do I want to run the marathon in? How many marathons do I want to run? How many times a week would I need to run? I wouldn't just go out and start running, right? Like I wouldn't forest gump it. I wouldn't just just keep running and running. Like that's not, that's not practical. And I think if we really take the, um, you know, a, a business, you know, profit margin financial approach to this and, and really kind of go through that yes, no, yes, no. Is it critical? Is this the reason that's, that's where I've seen it lead to successful? If you come to the end, you say, yes, we need to rewrite. We feel confident in our reasoning. We're prepared for it to take around this many, you know, person hours. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think you, I think from a technical perspective, well, first of all, it's it's a garbage in, garbage out kind of thing, right? So mess begets more mess. And so I think that applies on both the technical side and the business side. So I think you can you can be empathetic towards the technical team by explaining we can't be as rushed and sloppy on the business side and you know, in the same way that we don't be rushed and sloppy on the technical side. And so that requires um, like 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 you were saying, you you have to say why is it that we want to do this, this, this big rewrite, you know, what are the pros and cons of it? Um, we have to expect that it's going to take a long time. So whatever the initial estimate is, you know, 
it's probably going to take longer than that. So we just have to come to terms with that. And are we willing to accept that risk? So a lot of it's just about your ability to accept risk. Um, so if you're in a situation where you have time and money to throw at the problem, then that's a good time to do a rewrite, right? Um, so if you are, you know, like I think you mentioned in your article, Debbie, that, uh, you know, when you, when, when the future is more important than the short term, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have enough resources available to say that we want to invest in the future and we're okay with some short-term risk that this is going to take on uh, the, the code is stable enough um, that we can keep the legacy code intact maybe why we write the new product um, this is kind of the same approach that the 30, 37 signals team took with with the rewrite of Basecamp. so they kept Basecamp classic around mm -hmm. while they took a whole year and put a whole other team on Basecamp next so that's the other thing that I would advise is not to have the same team working on both the legacy mm -hmm. code and the new code base, right? Um, and you also have to take, you have to look at the risk of that. Um, is there, because uh, from a morale standpoint, uh, and if everyone's not on board, right. then no one really wants to be the team that works on the legacy code base while the other team gets to be the one that gets to right, do all the fun stuff, right? So mm -hmm. you're going to need some real soldiers on the team if, if you're really going to go down that route. And you need to have that conversation up front. Hey, you know, are there people that are going to maintain the legacy code base at least to keep it stable? you know, to make sure that any critical issues come up that we're going to stabilize it. And from a business standpoint, can we agree that we're going to accept the risk of not adding new features to this old system? Because in doing so, it's going to complicate the, the eventual transition to the new system. Can we all agree to that? I, those conversations need to happen as soon as possible, not six months down the project when they say, you know, hey, we need to add this new feature. You know, well, we've agreed not to do that. So if you can afford to freeze the product, if you can afford to invest in the long term, if you got the executives on the team that understand the long term um, return on that investment, and you're looking at things like how long does it take for a new developer to get up to speed, right? Um, if every time you have a new developer coming on the team and it's taking them <laughs> months to get to the point where they can add a new feature, then that's a very good metric you can deliver to the financial team. Look, if we can get this code base cut back, we can get someone up and running in days instead of weeks or months. That's a major return on the investment, right? Mm -hmm. And if we have this new system in place, what's now taking us months to get features in place, we can do in a matter of days or weeks, uh, in a matter of a sprint or so. Um, and I think those are those are good numbers and metrics to go by. And like you were saying, Debbie, if you have a, if you have a churn, right? If your customers are are jumping ship, that's a number you can go by. Mm -hmm. So when you get the first um, bit of the rewrite out there, um, can you get a prototype out there that's under automated test that's that's clean cleanly coded? Um, and then can you get some new customers on that platform? And can you show on that new platform early on how much faster you're able to ramp developers up? how much faster you can deliver features uh, to the market and how much customers are loving the new product. And if you can get that little win, then you can, then you can go for major, major rewrites of the, of the code. So mm -hmm. you can also look at it as rewrite. We're just going to rewrite the major MVP kind of portions of the code. Um, I think FreshBooks did this too. So um, FreshBooks, I think, has a FreshBooks Classic and then the, the new FreshBooks. And they're allowing both people to stay on both systems. Right. That's an option you can do as well. Um, same thing Basecamp did as well. So um, uh, that's I, so I think if you're in that situation, then go for it. 
Uh, I don't think if, if you're not willing to accept the risk that this could go way over schedule, that this could go way over budget, then I'd say you shouldn't take on the rewrite. I like that fresh books and, and base camp, those stories, but you know, it's, we have a tendency, all of us, to think of legacy code maybe as a bad thing. And we even started off on that, that tact at the beginning of, of the discussion, looking at all the, the negative pieces of that. Um, you know, I, I read a, another quote, Jonathan Bacara, one of, one of his pieces, and he said, you know, in, in most cases, we're here thanks to legacy code and, and not just we being the technical people, right? The early stages of a, a project or product you know, we're where great things happen and we started to grow and we captured clients. Uh, we built up financial interest, uh, maybe technical equity versus technical debt. You know, we established a, a brand and we, we got customers and all of that happened with the code that we had and it might still be around today and it might still work. And some customers, they, maybe they still love it. They still love the idea. And, and that that is legacy code. And, uh, mm -hmm that it's our legacy as a business and that there's a sort of an emotional hook about that. And on, uh, you know, on the technical side, none of us would have jobs if in fact there wasn't legacy code. So we have to be a little grateful for that as well in a, in a non-cynical kind of way. But, you know, so I, I wonder, do you all, do you encounter that with, with clients that there's a, you know, an emotional attachment and honor to, to those who have fallen before us and we shall not declare their code to be garbage. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think there's there's some aspect of that. So you you know there's different perspectives on who's who's looking at it as legacy code. Is it you know are the customers having a problem? So if the customers aren't having a problem, to them there's no such thing as legacy code. The the application's working fine, features are getting delivered on time. Uh, there's no business incentive to change the code, at least from that perspective, right? Um, now, internally, from an operational standpoint, um, if you've got a high turnover rate because of really poor quality code, right? So no developer wants to work in a system that is unmaintainable. Um, so it really depends on how poor the code is. If you're in a situation where um, that legacy code is at least refactorable so that you can go in and make changes, then I think there is some pride in being able to come. Like I love going into a crappy code base and being able to get little wins, right? I've done this several times for clients, you know, like coming into a system that's like, you know, sirens are going off, you know, thing that the, the system's shutting down every day and then you can at least stabilize the system you know, there's some fun in that. There's some, uh, so, so yeah. And then that doesn't require a major rewrite to do. Um, so, so yeah, there's some, there's some, there's some pride in that. I would also, I would also go so far as to say that if it wasn't for my experience with legacy code, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be able to advise people on what not to do. I think a lot mm -hmm. of times you learn a lot of valuable lessons by working in a crappy code base. Like you're like, wow, that's why dependency injection is important. You know, that's why like the MVC pattern is important, right? So mm -hmm. this is why it's really important to make sure you check in early and often on your code. This is why it's important to not just write for yourself, but understand that other developers are going to come in and read the code after, after you do. So uh, I think a lot of junior developers, especially, so when you're just starting off in your career, um, you're 
you're a lot of the, especially if you're people taking online courses, it's always like you're always you're always starting with these nice greenfield projects where you know you're getting to start the whole thing from scratch. When the reality is you're you're coming into a corporation or something like that, and this code base has been around forever. You know, uh, here in Cleveland, uh, Progressive Insurance they they make a joke that they say they're an IT company that sells insurance because there's so many people working on this this code base that they've been migrating into you know, C-sharp forever, it seems like. So it's it's a perpetual rewriting of that code base. Um, and so, yeah, that legacy code base is around. It's it's delighting customers. It's teaching you what not to do. So, um, so in that regard, you can be thankful for it. Um, but still, you know, you should be able to refactor it or in the rare circumstances, sometimes do that, the major rewrite as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I... I appreciate that and um, definitely agree, Jason, with what you just said. Um, it's funny when um, <clears throat> when you started talking about the emotional attachment, I felt I felt that it was almost um, it made me chuckle to think that someone was viewing code as an heirloom that must be protected and that was irreplaceable. Um, you know, it's not someone's wedding ring passed on from generation. It is, in fact, a piece of code that is malleable and and um, and like Jason said, valuable, and we can be thankful for it. And viewed by many as uh, an enjoyable problem to solve to make it even better. So um, I have not come across many people at all that say I wrote this code. It's mine. I'm emotionally tied to it. Please don't rewrite it. Most people say it's mine. I'm emotionally tied to it and I know it stinks. Like most people, most people, you know, the founder CTO who, you know, got the company off the ground and he's very proud of or her, you know, um, accomplishments. And they will say, you know, it's, I wrote it and I'm not the best person to take it forward. And I fully admit that it's not as good as it needs to be or as it could be. So it is very rare to see someone um, holding on to something that's not good for the business. Um, Mm. One other thing I want to bring up is there is, you know, I come from the the business side, as you can guess, you know, I have I've been running agile software engineering teams for 20 years almost, you know, since agile was practically invented, but I'm not on the implementation side. I'm not a software developer. Um, I am, you know, in fact, on the team side of things. So my perspective, I think, and Jason's is really interesting, even for me to listen to as we're talking about this. Um, one parallel here is there's something called the green year curve and that was literally invented in the 70s and popularized through harvard business review and it talks about the alternating periods of chaos and calm that all enterprise companies and startups go through and there are you know as you succeed you go up it's oh my god this is great and then you hit a wall or you hit a roadblock and boom you go down and then you go back up and it's through those kind of like valleys of death, if you will, if you can make the leap over to the other side, you might have heard of like crossing the chasm. There's a lot of ways to depict this visually. Um, if you can make it through that period of chaos, you are rewarded by another period of calm and another period of growth. And so in these times, organizations, this is when you replace your founders with hired guns, if you will. This is where you place your leadership team, hire a different type of employee. And code also goes through these patterns. So we are um, here because of the legacy code. It was, you know, the thing that got us started in many cases. And also, like with the business, it parallels. There are periods where 
instead of being an asset, our legacy code starts to be a crutch. It starts to hurt us. It starts to slow us down. And we can separate. We can say, it is what got us here today. And it is no longer the thing that's going to get us where we need to go tomorrow. Hmm. So I think looking at it as, listen, it's not me. It's not personal. I'm not doing anything wrong. In fact, it is because we are succeeding just like with our team and our people inside the code, we go through these periods of chaos and calm. And when the, the legacy code is no longer serving our best interests, it needs to in part or in whole go away. You know, we talk about software engineering and yet, you know, there's, there's an artistry and uh, sort of stronger connection to the code than, than one would think if, you know, a, I put up some steel girders for a bridge, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't know, Jason, you're nodding, but you know, do you see that with senior sort of engineer types that, uh, hey, look, we all got to get aligned mm -hmm. around this. And I think a lot of the legacy code ideas that are the negative side come from uh, maybe our, you know, the artistry of going, you know, that's not how I would do it. Or, you know, I actually want to tear it down and rebuild it because that's more fun for me. Right. You have to balance that from a business perspective. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's um, that's that's kind of natural. Like you'll see people who, and I think it even goes with anybody who has their own way of doing things. Right. Um, you could walk into a room and be like, I wouldn't have the couch over there. This is a dumb layout for this apartment. I wouldn't have the chair over there. That's stupid. Um, if you're a, if you're an artist or designer, you go. You walk into a company, you might go, this logo is dumb. This logo is stupid. I would totally have done this different. This is like, this is using some kind of thing that was popular in the mid 2000s, you know, the little swoosh thing on it or whatever. Like, that's dumb. It's so outdated. Let's redo the logo, right? Right. I think, uh, so I think it's kind of a natural tendency for creative types to want to do that, to want to put their own stamp of, of their creativity onto something. I think the difference with a software application is this is huge. You know, you're not just moving a couch around. You're not just resketching a logo you're talking about taking a lot of work to put your stamp of approval to put your own little design brand on it um, and so i think as you become more professional in your career you come to accept that every developer um, like i look at a code base and go you know i have no idea what these people are under they may have been under a tight deadline i don't know what circumstance they were in so you try to walk in with saying this person probably had the best intentions and they were probably doing the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time they wrote the code, right? Because writing web apps in the year, you know, 2002 is a lot different than it is writing in 2018. There's a lot of tools and libraries that we have at our disposal now that weren't around back then. And so if you're working on a code base that was written in 2002, uh, you can't be like, wow, why do they do this? It's so dumb, it's so stupid. It's more like just going, wow, that's an interesting way to solve that problem. You know, how, what, what do I have done if I didn't have you know, like you were saying, like if it's a React or something like that, like what would I have done without these view tools or without NPM or something like that? Like how would I have solved these problems, you know? So taking that into consideration uh, and understanding that it's someone else's work and respecting that I think is key. And I think there is a little bit of pride and I think you can still get that pride by going in and saying, I don't need to do a massive rewrite to put my, my brand on it. I can go in and say, look, this is how you refactor code. Um, this is how you do it while you're doing other stuff. You go in and you find, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to make a feature change, you know, you have that discussion with your product owner. You say, hey, you know, while we're making this, this change, I think it would be advantageous for us to, you know, to, 
to refactor this a little bit so that um, you know it's going to be better the next time. Um, and or I would even argue sometimes uh, if if you know if if you don't have that kind of trust, like go kind of skunk works on it. You know, like if you know that as a developer that it's going to be better. I know, right? If you know as a developer that it's going to be better, um, then just go in and do it. And sometimes that might even mean putting in a little extra time. It depends on your level of of comfort. Um, I don't necessarily recommend this for everybody, but I remember uh, being in a company and, uh, you know, we had, we were in a situation where like we didn't have an, an ORM basically. And so there were all these handcrafted queries everywhere. And I knew in my heart of hearts that if we refactored that, it would speed up things. And so uh, every, every night I would work on that a little bit. I would stay over at the office. So I wasn't impacting the company's budget. You know, this is my own decision that I was making on my own time. And I think at the end of the day, like my IT director at the time, I was like, this is what I've created. So I came in at the end. I said, I've worked on this in my own time. It's not like I was eating a budget. I'm on salary. So it's not like I was charging anybody per hour, but this is how much I believe in it. And then the other developers loved it. You know, our productivity increased and that bought me some leverage to, to authorize some more refactorings going mm -hmm. forward is the show, you know, so I think business people. Um, so from a, from a, if you're on a technical side, you know, business people always value skin in the game. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, by doing that, you're showing that you have skin in the game. You're showing that you, you're willing to invest your time to prove that that is how valuable it is to do it. And I think if you show some of that, it can get you some leverage on the business side to say, wow, this is, this person's taking this really seriously. Maybe we should listen to them. It's not, they're not just doing it just to, you know, whatever, because they want to goof off on some new technology or whatever. So. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that I would add if, I like what you said, Jason, but the one thing that made me nervous um, when you when you talked about productivity, I think that um, absolutely, if you see a way to improve things, if if you're if you have skin in the game, if you're passionate about it, those are all amazing things. Like for me, we we like to throw in like an anti goal, if you will, to kind of make sure that that those good intentions don't actually deter um, the greater good, and that is you know, we focus on and we distinguish between team productivity and individual productivity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's for me is like a key piece of the recipe here. So if, if there is an opportunity for someone to make something better, it really does have to be better for the team, not just to show off, if you will, right? And I think Jason, you were talking about that, like, oh, you, you saw this opportunity and it increased our productivity and the other developers loved it. And for me, that's the key, yeah. right? Because without that, it's very risky to have um, folks going off in all directions. You come back in in the morning, oh, well, I did this, I did this, I did this. And then we come in the morning, well, we, we, uh, we actually set ourselves back and then we're, we're kind of forking off in three different directions. But uh, so long as you can maintain that that high team productivity, whatever that looks like for your team, then I'm all for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I and I think the the, the part of the that story I'm leaving out is the many months beforehand where you know developers are powwowing over lunch or just like just cubicle talk. Oh, back yep. in the days of cubicles, that's great. <laughs> um, so that's just awesome. like uh, so just talking, you know, when you just hear the same problems come up and you you keep telling it to the project managers, hey, we need to fix this. Hey, right. and then like you're no one's listening to the tech team, right? Um, and and you all know how much is going to benefit, you know. So then 
you know, I was the, I was the, I was a soldier that took one for the right, team. Right, right, right. And like, I, I believe in it so much that I'm going to stick around at night and, and, and work on this. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that you don't want to just like randomly throw in some kind of weird library because you think it's cool. And then everyone's like, dude, what did you do? Like, this is, this is a dumb idea. Right. So yeah, definitely, the whole code definitely have, back, yeah. right, right, definitely right. have team buy-in, even if it's under the radar team buy-in, yep. uh, you know, yeah, I agree. It's you don't want to be a lone wolf and then out just doing things that could cause more harm than good. In yep. fact, I think it's to be clear, I think that in that very code base I was in, that that was part of the problem that was going on beforehand was that each developer was off doing their own thing and that was actually just compounding the problem. Right. Um so yeah. Great. Going cowboy, right? <laughs> yes. Well, I appreciate you both. Super cool spending time with you. And the sales guy in me says that if there's any way we should all do business together, you just let me know. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks you for having us on. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.